As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, Tuesday was a busy day at the Banks house, and so at 6 p.m. we had the big question. You guys encounter the big question quite often, quite often. What's for dinner? What are we going to eat? And so nobody really felt like cooking or going by the grocery store because the pantry was bare. And so we decided it's Tuesday. Let's do Taco Tuesday. So we did Taco Tuesday. Anybody ever done Taco Tuesday? Yeah. And so uh, I was at home. I was fixing the kids bean burritos with rice on the side, some chips. I got corn in them, right? And, and some cheese. And my Bennett, my three-year-old son, proclaims, I want Oreos for dinner. And so I look at him, and I find myself saying this, you have to eat your bean burrito before you can eat an Oreo. Now, as I began to think about that, I thought, okay, I am serving the boy a flour tortilla with beans on it. So basically what I'm telling him is you need to eat this junk before you can eat this junk. Uh, Anybody else ever eat food that has little to no nutritional value. Anybody ever do that? Uh, am I the only one that has to confess today? Okay, sometimes I, I do that. If you're eating clean, then good for you, but sometimes I, I eat some bad food. Now, why? Because it's convenient, it's often tasty, and it's Taco Tuesday, you know? I mean, it's on sale, so because you get a big bargain, you're like, Let, let's go take advantage of it, but it doesn't really help us be healthier. In fact, if you eat it too often, if you eat too much of it, It can actually hurt your health in a a large degree. Well, spiritually, I think we often do the same thing. Just because we've always done it this way and it's convenient, this is what we do when it comes to God. And sometimes spiritually, we take in a lot of spiritual fast food, what's convenient, what's tasty, what's easy, and what we're taking in spiritually doesn't really help us to grow to be more like Christ. I mean, it looks like spiritual food, it tastes good, but it doesn't really do what we need to do, have happen within our soul. Well, our passage today kind of addresses this issue of achieving greater spiritual depth within our journey with Christ. If you'll look with me to Luke chapter 5 and verse 29, The Bible says, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now if you were here last week, Uh, This was our passage that we looked at, and the context is this. Jesus had just brought grace to one of the most despised men in Galilee. There was a tax collector, very likely a corrupt tax collector, by the name of Levi. Levi would take money from the people as he would take their taxes, But Jesus came to him and extended the hand of grace, and Levi became a follower of Jesus Christ, and Jesus changed his name to Matthew, which means a gift from God, and Matthew became one of the 12 disciples. Well, Matthew decides that he's going to throw a big party and invite all of his friends to come and meet and hear Jesus. The only problem is 
all the sinners were mafia kind of guys. They were great sinners. And so here's all these undesirables, all these people in town that nobody really wanted to have anything to do with. They're all at Matthew's house, and there's Jesus and his disciples, and they're sitting there eating together, and the great tax collector revival begins to break out. People's lives are being changed. Grace is reaching out to people that others thought were absolutely hopeless. And then, knock, 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 the God police show up. The Pharisees and their little minions, the scribes, show up, and they have been looking for something to get Jesus on. And so when they walk into the scene, they immediately go off. I mean, immediately they start tweeting out, Jesus eating with sinners, hashtag false messiah. For whatever reason, Pharisees just seem to love Twitter. I don't know. I don't get it really. But anyway, uh, so Jesus replies to them, uh, I've come to help those who need forgiveness. I've come to extend grace to those who realize that they are sinners and and realize that they are in need of grace. And you think a lot of these people in this room are hopeless, but the ones who are really hopeless are the ones who think that you're perfect in and of yourself, that don't realize that you need a Savior yourself. And so then in verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples fast often, and they say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. So here was the Pharisees' strategy because they were trying to portray Jesus as a false Messiah or a false teacher before his message became any more popular. So strategy one was to attack Jesus for eating with undesirables. Strategy two is the Pharisees were going to attack Jesus for eating, period. And so they bring up the subject, it's a biblical concept, the subject of fasting. Now understand this about Phariseeism. Phariseeism will take a biblical concept and it will distort it so that the focus is on measured good behavior rather than the unmeasurable goodness of God's Spirit. Phariseeism does that all the time. It, it takes something that, that at its root is biblical, it's a biblical concept, and then distorts it, exaggerates it, takes it beyond Scripture, so that instead of the focus being on God and His goodness, the focus starts becoming upon us and our goodness, and we start measuring ourselves based on good behavior, which allows us to feel better about ourselves outside of grace because we can say, hey, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not as bad as this guy, and look at all these things that I do. Pharisees constantly want us to glance at God and gaze at ourselves. They want to feel good about themselves. And so they take the focus off of God and put it on ourselves. And they try to make things very measurable and very controlled. Now this concept of fasting, it's a biblical idea. In fact, God commanded the Israelites on the Day of Atonement that they were to fast. Now, you might not know much about the Day of Atonement, but in the Old Testament, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. It was a major day in Israel's history. And so on that day, they would fast. They would go without food. And it was to show repentance from sin. It was also to show uh, a desire for God's forgiveness. And so throughout Scripture, we see people praying and fasting. 
They might fast to show grief. They might fast because they've done something that they know grieves God, and so their fasting was an act of repentance. Sometimes people would fast as an act of humility before God. The goal of fasting is not, make sure you catch this, the goal of fasting is not weight loss. Okay, I think I'm going to practice fasting because I need to drop 10 pounds. That's not the goal of fasting. The goal of fasting is also not, hey, look at me. The goal of fasting is spiritual growth through spiritual discipline and spiritual attentiveness. And so throughout the Bible, people would fast whenever they were desiring to hear from God. So you may have some area in your life where uh, you're really wanting to hear the voice of God and you're really wanting to spend concentrated time uh, in communication with God and the Holy Spirit. And so you practice prayer and fasting so that you can discipline yourself and tune your spirit into the voice of God. It's, it's a good biblical practice uh, to employ in your life. I, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because uh, I don't want to know who, who fasts and who doesn't, but I would, I would wonder in this room how many of us have ever practiced the spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting. Now, FYI, Jesus teaches us that whenever we fast, uh, we don't need to post it to Facebook. Hey, everybody pray for me today. I'm fasting, okay? Uh, that's, that's not how it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be kept as private as possible because it's something where you're kind of disengaging from food and you're taking that time to really engage with God and to spend time with Him. So it's a very personal thing. So here's how the Pharisees framed their argument. They said, John the Baptist's disciples fast. We fast. Those that follow us fast. But your disciples don't fast. So essentially they identify three groups. You have the Pharisees. And in this passage they represent somewhat the old guard, the old school guys. They fasted every Monday and Thursday. Every time they went to synagogue, the Pharisees would practice fasting. They always had that appropriate scowl on their face. You know, have you ever met that Christian that every time they take a picture, it's something like this? You know, that they have that, you know, it makes them seem like they know the Bible more because they have the scowl on their face. And so the Pharisees always practiced the godly scowl, and they were keepers, guardians. They considered themselves guardians of the law. And they really they worked hard to try to preserve. What, what had been, and, and they also would frequently go beyond the Bible to create other rules that people were to follow. And at the heart, at the goal of Phariseeism is control. And understand this because I realize that probably some of us in this room are recovering Pharisees. Uh, some of us in this room have, have spent time uh, in churches or, or studying the Bible with people that might have had this type of bent to their, to their theology. And at the heart of Phariseeism is a desire to control people. And so what, what you do is you use laws, and you take what the Bible says and then you add to it, and you use fear, and you try to use intellect to, to, to get people to do what you want them to do because uh, the, the, you come across as, well, I, I know so much that I, I don't want to be challenged. But the ultimate heart of it all is to control people. So you have the Pharisees, and then you have John the Baptist and his disciples. 
Now, John the Baptist was a very unorthodox man. John was a wilderness man. Uh, You remember he wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. That was his diet. He lived out in the wilderness. I envision him as a cross between Bear Grylls and Phil Robertson. If he were to come into church today in today's clothing, I, th- I think he would have worn camouflage and big boots and had a big beard. And, and you know, whenever he would walk into a place, people noticed. Well, when Herod arrested John, his disciples fasted. Now, why were they fasting? Because they were wanting God to do something. And so they were calling out to God, asking for an intervention of God. John's main message was, prepare yourself be baptized, prepare your heart, because God is sending the Messiah. And so fasting was part of his message because people were waiting to hear the voice of God. They wanted to experience the coming of the Messiah. And then you have Jesus and his disciples. Now, the intellect of Jesus is undeniable, and so too is his power. Because he was healing people. I mean, the paralytic man, the story that we looked at a few weeks ago, he's healing people of their diseases, healing lepers of their diseases. His fame is growing throughout the entire region. So the Pharisees began to be threatened by this because they couldn't control it. The Pharisees are always threatened by the work of God. They're always threatened by the work of the Holy Spirit. They're always threatened by the Son of God. And so they start getting threatened by this, and they're looking for the weaknesses in his game. They're looking for something to twist and distort so that they can tear down Jesus before he becomes any more popular. So here they go. They walk into the the tax collector party at Matthew's house, they're looking for weaknesses in Jesus, and over in the corner is Simon Peter. Chicken wing in both hands, chowing down, he's got blue cheese in his beard, and they think to themselves, we got him. And then they look over here and they see Matthew, this man that had sat behind the tax collector's table, this man that was despised because he had stolen from people, now he's reclining at the dinner table with Jesus. We've got him. We can take this. We can smear Jesus. We can distort his public image, and we can destroy his ministry before it ever gets going. But then Jesus says to them, verse 34, you can't make the wedding guest fast while the groom is with you, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus essentially says to the Pharisees and the scribes, you guys just don't get it. John's baptism, your fasting, the Old Testament law, it was all pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of of what you've been fasting about. I am the fulfillment of all this scripture that you have been studying. In Jesus' days, weddings were more than a 30-minute ceremony followed by a two-hour reception that featured stale cake and bad punch. In Jesus' days, weddings were a week-long celebration of a new beginning. A marriage is actually a page one concept in Christianity. God establishes marriage and begins laying the foundation for family in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I'm afraid that sometimes in our busy modern culture, we often miss its symbolism. 
Marriage brings together the complement of gender. You have a man and you have a woman. Now, I know that we have a tremendous amount of similarities, but you may have noticed that there's also a little difference between men and women. But there's a complement that comes together. A man and a woman leave the families of their youth, and whenever they get married, they form a new family. Intimacy in marriage is supposed to be a private frequent renewal of your marriage vows, and it comes after marriage. You say, well, why does it come after marriage and not before? Because intimacy was given to us by God to illustrate the marriage relationship of two people coming together as one. It reveals those two individuals coming together in a vulnerable state as one flesh, It's a natural act, but it's capable of producing the supernatural miracle of new life. And then as new life is extended, those children grow up in a family where there is a marriage, there is a mother and a father who love them, teach them right and wrong, teach them the ways of the Lord. One day, whenever they grow up, they too leave the family of their youth and marry They too have a family, and the society is sustained by the strength of our families. And at the heart of the family is marriage. It's a page one idea in Christianity. It doesn't need to be rewritten. Marriage is a picture of Jesus. The Bible describes marriage as a picture of Jesus and His love for the church as he lays down his life for his bride, the church, and the church finds new life and identity in Jesus Christ, and they are his bride. In Scripture, Jesus is described as the groom, and the church is described as his bride. So Jesus says, you guys don't get it. I am the groom, and the groom is here. I am here to receive the bride. I am here for the marriage ceremony, the new covenant that will be formed in my blood. And now is not the time to fast. Now is the time, not the time to wait. Now is the time to eat. Now is the time to party. Now is the time to celebrate. Because the groom is here. Now, interestingly, if you look at the teaching here, Jesus also foreshadows his death. Because he says one day, the groom will be taken away. And when that happens, you will fast because you will be waiting for the day when the groom returns. And that's where we are today. We await the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, He will not come as the baby of Bethlehem. Whenever He returns again, He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know there's a lot of things in this world that are dark, a lot of things in this world that are unjust, and we fight for justice, and we try to speak out and be light within the darkness, but we look forward, and we fast, and we pray, and we long for the day when Christ returns, and the bridegroom comes to to once again restore the shalom of his creation. Well, in verse 36, Jesus tells a parable. He says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. Now, I realize that here in North Dallas, we often buy our jeans pre-shrunk, 
And uh, we even sometimes buy jeans with holes in them. Yeah? Anybody ever done that? Uh, but not everybody does that. I mean, in most of the world, they used to try to buy pants that didn't have holes in them. Okay? And they would try to buy clothing that, that looked like it, it was all matching. You know, so they wouldn't buy pants that had patches on it. Uh, but, but here, you know, we'll buy furniture that's already distressed and, and we'll eat in nice restaurants that are carefully designed to look like an old barn and think it's cool. Okay? So, but Jesus is talking about here, okay, you have, this, you have this old faded garment. And through the course of time, it has a hole in it. And so you're trying to patch it. Well, you have problems here. Number one, uh, the newly dyed cloth will not match up with the old cloth. So first of all, it won't look right. It just won't, you'll notice that it's patched. Secondly, when that garment gets wet, uh, that, that new cloth is going to shrink. And whenever it shrinks, it's going to tear an even bigger hole in the garment. So trying to patch up the old, Jesus says, is not going to help. In fact, it's just going to make the problem worse. Now, Jesus, again, is addressing the Pharisees, and he's saying to them, I'm not here just to patch up the old system. I'm not here just to be a patch on your old life. I am an entirely new way of living. And then he continues. He's going to drive his point home. In verse 37, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put in fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants new, because he says, the old is better. Now, in biblical days, they, they did not have water treatment plants. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have sinks in the kitchen or in the bathroom. And so they would treat their water. And one of the ways that they would treat their water is they would mix within the water a, a grape paste. They often called it wine. Uh, it, it, it differed greatly from what we call wine today. And they would take this and they would store it in usually goat skins. Uh, it was called a wine skin. Now, over time, the, the grapes would ferment, and the fermentation would also act as a purification within the water, and it would also bring flavor to, to the water. And whenever it fermented, there would be an expansion that takes place. Now, they used goatskin because it had a natural elasticity so that whenever the grapes began to ferment, it, it would expand enough. Now, if you were to use a goatskin that had already been used and stretched to its capacity, it had lost its elasticity. When the juice began to ferment, the skin would burst. Kind of like that time that you wanted a cold Coke. But you didn't, want it, you didn't want to wait for it to get cold in the refrigerator. So you put it in the freezer. Am I the only one that's ever done this? You put it in the freezer and you thought to yourself, I'll come back in about 40 minutes and this is going to be like a slushy. And you get busy with stuff, and you hear this boom, and you realize that Coke's been in the refrigerator for several hours, and it just exploded. It expanded, and then it overcame the, the contents of the can, and it exploded. Well, the same thing would happen with the fermented wine. So Jesus says, you can't pour me into what has been. I am not just a modification of the old you. I'm not just a modification 
of the old law. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of what has been. Everything that has been is pointing to me, and I bring an entirely different way of living. So Jesus says to his disciples, let's eat, okay? It's time to celebrate. You can break your fast because God has provided the answer to what people have been fasting for for centuries. People longed for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God's Son, and Jesus says, hey, eat because I am here. All things, Jesus said, have become new. Now, all this brings me back to Taco Tuesday. Because for a lot of us, our Christianity, our spiritual journey, doesn't have a lot of thickness. It's tasty, it's convenient, but it doesn't really have that spiritual nourishment that we need. And we, we embrace Christianity, but our version of Christianity is kind of a fast food Christianity. We try to pour new wine into the old wineskin of our lives, keep my life as much like it used to be before Jesus as I possibly can be, and, and just add Jesus to my life so that he's my co-pilot instead of centering my life around Jesus. And our version of Jesus is a Sunday drive through with, with little spiritual nutrition and a lot of fat. And when drive through Christianity becomes the norm, the results are catastrophic. I don't want us as a church to simply snorkel on top of the living water of Jesus Christ. I want us to submerge ourselves into the depths of the living water. I want us to open the Scripture. I don't want to give a Sunday talk where I give you my opinion and then sprinkle it with a little scriptures here and there that really don't even are, they're not even attached to what I'm talking about. I want us week after week to open the Word of God and say, this is what the scriptures say. How does this apply to our life? How do we need to change because this is what we've seen in the Word of God? Whenever we go into life group classes, we pray together, we care for one another, we live life together. But in that life group class, we, often open the word, we also open the Word of God and we look at it and we ask ourselves, what is God saying here and how does that apply to my life and how does that change me so that my life can reflect God? Because God is not just this little thing that's orbiting around me and I'm the center of the universe, but God is the center of it all and my life revolves around Him and I seek to bring glory and honor to my Lord in everything that I am and in everything that I do, in my marriage, in my career, uh, in the way that I treat my neighbors, in the way that I, I see the world around me. I have a common goal and that is to bring glory to my Lord. I'm not just adding Him to my life and trying to change as little as possible. I am changing anything in my life that dishonors God and takes glory away from God. Through His power, I want alignment in my life so that all of me seeks to the very depth of my soul to bring glory to my Lord. Jesus says you can break your fast and eat because I am the answer. He's not merely a vehicle to get you to where you, you want to go. Jesus is the destination. 
And what he offers is a whole new you, a whole new way of living, a whole new way to view the world and to view others. He brings forgiveness to the junk of your past. He brings purpose to your present. And he brings hope to your eternity. Jesus doesn't just give us a few commands and say, hey, go, go follow these and I'll behave better. He gives us himself. He dies for us. He overcomes death for us. And he calls us to believe in him, to trust in him as Savior and Lord. That's the beginning step of faith. And when we trust in him as Savior and Lord, then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to live differently and see differently and treat people differently. But it begins with Jesus, placing your trust and faith in Him. The same grace that saves you, grows you. And so I ask this question. First of all, I ask those of you that have been coming to the church, hearing me talk, and God's been working in your life. He's put His tool belt on, and He's gone to work in your life. I ask you this question. Has there ever been that time in your life When you've knelt before the cross and you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, beyond going to church, beyond trying to be a good person, has there ever been that time where you say, God, I'm a sinner. I am not you. There is is evil and darkness within me, and I need forgiveness. And so I bow before the cross, and I trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I ask you to come into my heart and to change me from the inside out. Has there ever been that time in your life when you've taken that step? We call that the moment of salvation, the moment when you're born again. It's the beginning point of faith. For those of you that say, yeah, I'm a believer. Well, what would happen? What would happen in your spiritual life if you quit worshiping fast food style? If you quit trying to fit all your spiritual growth into two hours on Sunday? What would happen if you quit modifying the old you and just trying to tweak a little bit and instead you said, you know what, I'm going to lay down the old me because I want to be a new creation in Christ. I don't want to be spiritually malnourished. I don't want to settle for Taco Tuesday. I want spiritual substance. I want the depth that Christ offers me to truly be a new creation in Him. So I'm going to open the Word of God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to hear from the Holy Spirit. And through God's power, I'm going to align not just a few areas of my life with Him. I'm going to seek to align every area of my life so that I bring glory to His name. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads together? Musicians are going to come. And first of all, I want to talk to those that might not yet be a Christian, and I want to encourage you to make this your moment where you trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. You say, Lash, I really don't know what to say. Just call out to God in your own words and say, God, I'm a sinner. I ask for forgiveness, and I place myself at the cross. I place my faith in Jesus. He is more than a good teacher. He's more than a church. He is my Savior. He's my Lord. And I trust in Him that He has done for me what I could never do. Open your heart to God. Receive the gift of His Spirit. 
and ask Him to change you from the inside out. Make this the day of your salvation. I want to be a pastor to you. I want to encourage you to be baptized. I want to help you. If today you're taking that step of faith and becoming a believer, please come see me. I'll be here at the front during the next song. I'll be here after the service as well. Would love to talk to you. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you and we acknowledge that you are our King, you are our Lord. And we pray, Father, that we won't settle for a fast food Christianity. Help us, Lord, to open the depths of our life to you and to swim the depths of the living water. To see the treasures that you have for us and to realize that all of our life can bring glory to you. And whenever we begin to realize, Lord, that that is a single driving principle that runs through every area of life, we begin to see work differently. We see our neighbors differently. We see hurting people differently. We treat our family in a different way. And then ultimately, we begin to see ourselves differently because we see ourselves not as defined by the mistakes of the past. We see ourselves not standing on the treadmill of life, trying to get ahead, realizing that there's still dreams that are unfulfilled and that we often don't measure up in spite of our efforts. We begin to see ourselves in you and to realize that in you we're forgiven, in you we have meaning, and in you when we reach the valley of the shadow of death, we have hope, hope that transcends life, hope that lasts forever. And Lord, we realize that that's one thing that we never want to lose. Because when we lose hope, all we have is death and darkness. So Lord, help us to grab a hold of you, to experience your fullness, and to bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.